You're listening to On the Record Online with Eric Schwartzman, where reporters and journalists go on the record about how they use the Internet to cover the news. For the latest trends, tips, and tactics on how the web shapes popular opinion, subscribe to our RSS news feed or visit us online at www.ipressroom.com. Okay, so by now you know we're trying something a little different in the intro. Uh, Instead of the standard old who I am and what the show's about, uh, we're going to run these, um, when we've got them, segments featuring uh, sound bites from these Meet the Media segments that I've been doing for the Public Relations Society of America. We're going to do it again today. Um, I've got opinion editors from uh, three uh, U.S. national dailies. And it's interesting because the types of things they're talking about um, are, 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 are applicable to bloggers as well. I mean, they're trying to engage people in conversations about their opinions, about uh, they're trying to engage their readers in a discussion about, um, you know, various policy issues that they're writing about. Well, you know, so are bloggers, right? Trying to engage people in conversations, trying to participate in conversations. So I want to start by playing you a clip. Uh, This is Harold Jackson. He's the editorial page editor of the Philadelphia Inquirer. And um, he was talking about shared bylines or group bylines. Uh, You know, people submit columns to be uh, to appear in the opinion pages of the Philadelphia Inquirer, and you know sometimes there'll be more than one person's line, name on the byline, so it's like, hey, who really wrote this thing, right? The other thing uh, I asked him about was ghostwriters, because uh, clearly, you know, I know we all believe that the idea of ghostwriting a blog is 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 inauthentic and inethical. So listen to uh, what Harold Jackson has to say about you know the trouble with group bylines and, and ghostwriting. We do not oppose uh, multiple bylines. You know, uh, we ran a piece the other day uh, from a trauma physician and a, an ER and writing about the uh, gun violence in Philadelphia. And I think our readers are sophisticated enough to know that this is a collaboration and maybe one did the writing or one did more of the writing. So we're not opposed to that. Uh, I think the question was about ghostwriters. Now, again, you know, we frown upon ghostwriting. If we know that it's been ghostwritten, then we're not likely to, to use it. In retrospect, I guess the follow-up question uh, should have been, well, I mean, if you won't accept ghostwritten uh, columns, uh, then, you know, would you accept a really well-written column by a PR agency on behalf of an organization if the organization didn't write it, but the PR agency helped put their ideas into words? Uh, I think we all know what the answer to that question would be. I also spoke with Eric Ringman. He's the commentary editor of the Star Tribune. That's based in Minnesota. They have a circulation of uh, 335,000. By the way, I didn't mention uh, the Philadelphia Inquirer has a circulation of 330,000. But listen to what Eric says. He basically gave us his key to writing opinion pieces most likely to engage readers in a conversation. Listen to this. People don't want to read dissenting points of view or disagreeable points of view. I think people read for one of two reasons. They either think that they're going to agree with a piece and they enjoy the affirmation, or they think they're going to disagree with a piece and they enjoy the engagement. Um, That's why I think it's important that the point of view of a piece be thoroughly decided before the writer starts writing and that it be 
signaled high up because that's your chance to hook a reader. We often hear it said that um, uh, control from a media consumption standpoint has shifted from a world where editors and program directors decide what we'll watch when we'll watch it to a world where people filter and consume uh, media and information anytime, anyplace, anywhere, right? Well, we had Ricardo Pimentel. He's the editorial page editor from the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel on the line as well. And here's the rub of that scenario, okay? Here's why, um, you know, consumer-controlled consumption of news and information may actually be counterproductive to media and democracy. Uh, and the things we've uh, noticed is, a, uh, as media has fragmented, a tendency for readers to only want to read what validates uh, their opinion. And you can do that extremely well uh, online. So our challenge uh, is to, um, to make popular, once again, reading uh, contrasting views. If you're interested in attending an upcoming Meet the Media teleseminar, we do them once a month for the Public Relations Society of America. And I believe the next one is going to be TV and radio talk show bookers. After that, I believe it's travel media. And then I believe financial reporters. Then I believe newswires. Uh, in any event, if you want to check the schedule, go to www.ipressroom.com forward slash events. I want to play for you a conversation between myself and Eric Rabe. He is the Senior Vice President of Communications at Verizon and uh, a really interesting and very gifted communications executive. Uh, I invited him to be our strategic recap at the Public Relations Society of America Digital Impact Conference, uh, which I was honored to chair for PRSA this year. And I actually invited Eric to uh, deliver the strategic recap. He accepted. This is a discussion between him and I. Uh, it, it occurs in New York in the month of May 2000, I think at the beginning of May 2008. And I hope you enjoy it. It is going to be played, uh, as usual, entirely unedited after this. Don't be left behind. Get the latest online PR tools and services from my press room. Powerful, easy to use, available on demand. Extend your sphere of influence online with iPressroom, tools for online media centers, virtual private press rooms, RSS news feeds, podcasts, and more at www.ipressroom.com. iPressroom, always on, even when you're off. We are going to proceed with our strategic recap, end of the day session. Um, it is my pleasure to have to introduce and to have with us today Eric Rabe, uh, who is Senior Vice President of Communications for Verizon. <clears throat> I've uh, put together a bunch of questions um, about things we discussed over the course of the day, um, and I'm hoping that you guys are going to jump in real early and start, start participating. But uh, first of all, thanks for coming. Delighted to be here. Um, I know it was a busy day for you. We've, uh, we've, been, we've been out and about today. There was a, a news item that broke today concerning uh, child yeah. pornography, yes? We did a, uh, a news conference with the New York Attorney General in which we announced some extra steps that we'll take. We've obviously been working on child pornography for a long time at Verizon, but uh, there's some more things that we can do and will do to um, 
make it harder for Verizon customers to find child pornography uh, on using our system and uh, make it harder for uh, child pornographers to do what they do. Um, we think this is the right thing to do. We've been involved in this for a long time, and it's great to have a cooperation with the Attorney General and uh, uh, several other companies, too. Time Warner and Sprint are also involved in, uh, in some of these measures. So, uh, you know, this is sort of the anti-social aspect of the web rather than the social networking aspects. Did, was there a, an online component from a communication standpoint? Um, the, uh, yes, there was. We've, I mean, we do, uh, frankly, everything we do has an online component at Verizon at this point in our, our existence. Uh, there's just too much out there. So um, in this case, however, it was pretty well buttoned down because the Attorney General wanted you know, to make his announcements, so we didn't do a lot in advance. But we did an announcement uh, just a couple of days ago about some additional channels that we're going to carry on the Fios television system. We're adding uh, 25 or more HD channels and about uh, 30, 40 other channels. And we actually made that announcement on the blog the day before we did the press release. Um, we'd had a lot of traffic on our, we have a, a blog at Verizon where people uh, write about all sorts of things, largely policy issues, but uh, also um, product and service issues, and uh, we'd had a good deal of uh, commentary there from people who were concerned about, uh, they wanted more sports channels, they wanted more HD, you know, they just went out and spent $1,500 on a TV set and they want to see stuff on it, uh, so we thought that was the perfect place to make that announcement. We actually did make it there, and it uh, was interesting to me that uh, it took about 10 minutes from the time I posted on that blog before it showed up on the first uh, of the bigger blog sites in the, in the internet. How long did it take to get picked up from blogs by the traditional media? Was that well? Really we didn't wait for the tradition. We right. we put it out. I post on the blog about eleven o'clock on Tuesday morning, and on Wednesday at eight we put the press release out. So I, it's probably not the best case study of that. But I don't think it would take too long. I get very many every day. I get uh, calls from reporters who have seen something someplace on a blog or somewhere on the internet, and they're asking me questions about it. And, uh, you know, that's, that's very common from mainstream publications. I mean, typically today, I think reporters are going out, they're doing their Google thing and coming up with all this stuff way ahead of the first call that I get. So, even on things we announce, I should say. You know, even if I put something out, they'll be out there looking for the, the reaction and the commentary of some of the, uh, in, in the telecommunication space, there are some primary blogs that we watch a lot, uh, GigaOM, for example, uh, is, is a big one. I don't get a list half a dozen of them, but the point is that I think that the people that are covering us for the traditional press are also looking at these same, same places. So today we had Paul Gillen, who offered a framework for how to apply social media. We had uh, Steve Rubell talking about what might be coming next. We had... Uh, Dave Binkowski, who talked about widgets. What tools do you think we need to be paying attention to now, and which ones do you see getting influence moving forward? Uh, I think you've got to pay attention to all of them. It's a big job, but there are millions of them, and they're coming, you know, new ideas are Twitter, for example. Is that a year old, maybe, or something? I don't know how old, how old Twitter is, but it's... Uh, oh, his mic is not, is, is not working. Do you want to bring us up that mic, and you can use the hand mic? It says it's on. Maybe. But anyways, we, we can hear it. So uh, in any on. case, uh, you know, some of these things are, are 
very new. I think at least our philosophy is thank you sort of be aware of everything that's out there and and then be a little more cautious about which ones you use. Mm-hmm. We're probably you know as as large as we are and as sort of traditional company that we are, I think we're less likely to be out there on sort of the bleeding edge of, of some of the uh, um, things that are available on the web. We have not, for example, gotten into Second Life, and I'm not sure that Second Life seems to be getting a little passe at this point, but uh, there was a lot of excitement a year or so ago, and companies were putting up their their presence on Second Life. Uh, we, we thought we couldn't quite figure out how that was going to work for us, and so we stepped back from that. But as I've indicated, we're very active in the blogs. Uh, we do have a presence on uh, Facebook. We've uh, here, you know, we've taken a piece that specifically we think would appeal to Facebook users. That is ringtones, and we've kind of used that as a way to as a way to uh, uh, you know address that community. And so there's now a, a, a Verizon community around ringtones on Facebook. So we're doing some of those kinds of things. Um, on the social networking sites. Stepping back to the, the sort of the blogosphere, I'd have to say that's a whole different situation. I think our approach to blogs basically is that these people are pretty much like reporters, regular print reporters, broadcast reporters, and we're kind of treating them that way. Uh, obviously, they're reporting to much smaller groups, but with a lot more, I think, uh, uh, interaction and immediacy with the people that read them. So, you know, I think their their relationship with their readers is probably closer than the uh, average television broadcaster's relationship with the people who are watching the TV news, for example. So we think they're important. Um, you know, you kind of have to slice and dice to figure out, you know, whether they are impactful enough to be worth the limited amount of media relations time that we have to spend. But uh, certainly, we've identified probably 20 that we think are really key, and a bunch more. Uh, that we think are sort of semi-key, and then, uh, of course, any any blogger who calls us for comment, and I actually talked to somebody about this story just today. I'd never heard of his his little thing, but uh, you know, he was asking, and I was more than willing to talk to him. So, um, I think there's a you've got to be kind of open to this because the guy who may be seeming to write for a, an irrelevant blog today may actually be writing for the most relevant blog tomorrow. So. I think you've got to work on those relationships just as you'd work with uh, any other reporter on, on, on relationships going, you know, looking into the future. Uh, Steve uh, Rubel told us this uh, during lunch that information is seeping out of institutions everywhere. Sure is. Uh, so, so if it's going to leak and there's no way to stop it, how do you use that to your advantage? Yeah, I think uh, it, it, I'd certainly endorse the point. Uh, I can give you countless examples of very private proprietary information which has been posted by our own people in places that they thought would be useful. For example, when we were beginning to deploy the fiber project in New Jersey, I think probably with the best intentions, one of our technicians actually posted on Broadband Report, which is a site that we worry about a lot, uh, our deployment schedule. Uh, we don't normally post our deployment schedules on the internet. <laughs> because we don't want uh, Comcast and Cablevision to go running out and putting people on two-year contracts in the places where we're building the fiber. But uh, he did it at any rate, and of course we have no way of knowing who that was and and, uh, didn't try to track him down or do any investigation. But 
Um, we tried to then use that as a way to talk about what we were doing in New Jersey, get some excitement building, and, and we very much engage with uh, sites like that where, where things are likely to lead to. Um, but I think you've got to also just be kind of nimble and just, you know, watch for stuff and when it happens, figure out how to, you know, in that particular set of circumstances, what can you do with it? So in this case, we were able to try to use that to build a discussion around our coming to New Jersey, and uh, I think that was actually pretty successful. What uh, insights as a communicator do you take away from the convergence of personal and professional communications in the mobile space? Yeah, they're almost the same, aren't they? There's really not, I don't think there's much distinction, you know. Everybody's carrying, I, I was just thinking about how many devices I've got with me today, but it's more than one, believe me. Um, and, you know, that I, th I think the other piece of that is not only the, the ways of communicating converging, but there's sort of this 24-hour workday that, uh, you know, everybody is working kind of around the clock. Um, so I, I guess it's, it's kind of a two-edged sword. But uh, I do think that uh, as an internal communication point, our employees are expecting to hear from us around the clock. So as developments occur that they need to know about, we can use those mobile devices to reach them. Uh, and of course, media are working around the clock as well. You know, every newspaper website is uh, on duty 24 hours a day. So again, you know, it's a way that we can communicate with people who otherwise would not, you know, we wouldn't be able to reach. We might be able to, you know, call them at home, but uh, now we can just send them an email message and the chances are at, uh, you know, 10 o'clock at night they're going to see that email message and act on it. Uh, I think people are very, very aware and active in this area. Um, we, we had a presentation from uh, David Binkowski from Manning, Salvage and Lee and Ken Zinn from Procter and Gamble and they showed us how they were able to save millions of dollars um, and more effectively promote a brand through social media uh, instead of paid media. And this morning we had David Carr from the New York Times who told us that uh, he thinks there's no way mainstream media can compete with uh, social media that empowers conversations. Um, so if organizations could effectively reach audiences less expensively, more efficiently through social media, do you think social media could kill paid media? Uh, not in the near term, I don't think. But certainly the paid media paradigm is changing dramatically, and, and certainly the ways in which we are used to using advertising through you know, mass media, uh, that, that whole world is changing quite dramatically, and there are lots of smart people trying to figure out how, what to do about that and how it's going to work. Uh, with no answers. I think the newspaper industry is in a, a very interesting situation right now. Um, as, a little less so maybe the, the broadcasters, but they're getting there because uh, in a world of um, television that works like the web works, uh, you know, it's a little tough to figure out why you need a local television station. So I think you can sort of look out a few years and, and kind of see their problem coming. Um, all of which is to say, for today, for a company like Verizon, where everybody's a customer or a potential customer, uh, mass media still makes an awful lot of sense. Uh, but I think that you can certainly reach particular audiences very directly. The ringtone example was one that I think is, is valid. Um, you know, 
there are market segments, there are particular audiences for particular products, for example, or particular messages, messages that uh, might very well be uh, segmented out, and, and the niche uh, approach is the most effective way to do it. I'll give you an example. Uh, as we, again, going back to this, I trust you're all familiar with the fact that we are building fiber optic cable all the way to customers' homes in a quite a unique uh, engineering effort that delivers a terrific product, but it's a very labor and time intensive project. So we get to a situation where we, mass media is not particularly effective because we've only been able to build you know, certain communities around a metropolitan area, for example. And in those cases, we're very much looking at how can we uh, just target that particular neighborhood. So, you know, it, to the extent that we can identify social media that, that work that way, we're trying to do that. Um, also, uh, you know, we're using techni techniques like door-to-door -door sales and stuff, which we, we haven't done ever, as far as I know, but certainly not since the 1910 or something like that. So uh, this is kind of a whole new way of approaching the market, but I think it is something, well, it's certainly something that we're looking at trying to figure out. Is there a way that we can use online media to reach a very targeted uh, group of customers? Um, another approach to this is to try to create uh, Fios fans, you know, in online. Can we put together, uh, and, and other companies have done this too, you know, to try to build a base of your customers in which you can communicate with them about uh, developments, new products, new ideas, things they might be interested in, new ways to use their product. We've done some of this with wireless particularly, uh, trying to, to uh, reach customers with ideas about how they can get more utility out of their, their cell phone or their, their handheld device. So uh, I think there are opportunities to do that. I think this is a very much a developing kind of area. We, um, we heard also today from Jason Falls, who's a PR person in Kentucky, and um, he, he, he talked to us about this notion of walking up to the water cooler, even if the conversation, well, particularly if the conversation is, is unflattering. The idea that if, as a PR person, you walk up to or enter a social conversation that's, that's, that's bordering on a crisis or indicative of a potential crisis, that that could have a calming effect. Um, do you have any experience with that? Are you yeah. doing anything like that? We do, and uh, you know, there are a couple of ways that we've done this. First of all, um, as I say, we operate the Verizon Policy Blog, so we get people you know, coming to us with issues, concerns, questions, and when we actually respond to them, there's often a kind of a bit of a surprise that there's you know, actually a voice at a place the size of Verizon that would be uh, responding to them. Uh, we get a great deal of one of the things that the internet and the communications that we have available to us today that enables is an awful lot of very direct customer feedback. So we get a lot of customers writing in, I've got this particular problem, this didn't work, this, you know, here's an issue I need help with. Uh, and we, uh, we have a, quite a mechanism in place at this point to respond to all of that. Um, and usually, you know, if I get these kinds of complaints, I, I write back personally and we have then a backup system that helps me figure out what needs to, to occur to make the situation right for the customer to get them the help they want. But when I respond, uh, customers are usually quite taken aback. Uh, one of the things that I think is true is that 
civility kind of takes a step back on the internet a little bit. So uh, sometimes some of these uh, communications are quite heated and written by somebody who does not expect a real human being on the other end is ever going to see them. So when they find out that they have been seen by a real person and that person is volunteering to help them out, uh, you know, that, that I think immediately begins to diffuse the situation. That if we actually, you know, help them and get them where they want to go, why that's even better. And I think we're pretty good at that. So, um, you know, that's, that's at one level. Then, as I say, the, the, uh, on the blog space, we've uh, tried to offer extra insights and extra information about things that we're doing, but uh, not, not infrequently what we can offer, what we're willing to say, is not enough for people. So then we'll get uh, some of that, you know, dare I say hostility, but uh, intense reaction coming back to us. You know, why aren't you doing more? You're not doing it fast enough. You're not doing enough of what I need. Um, so again, I think it's, it, but it, it seems to me it's part of the landscape in this day and age that, uh, that you have that interaction with customers, not necessarily always positive, but that you, you do need to respond to, you need to have some way of dealing with it. Um, you know, so in our case, if I get an, a customer issue, you know, we probably have 90 or 100 people who deal with just those kinds of complaints that come directly to somebody in the corporation uh, and, and go out and figure out what needs to be done and solve the problem. So, big effort, frankly. One of the more controversial issues facing uh, communications industry is this net neutrality issue. Yeah. Um, can you explain to us the concept of net, net neutrality? What are the issues and why is it such a controversial, debated topic? Yeah. Um, to think about net neutrality, I think you have, to, you have to realize that there are some very strongly held but divergent views of what even the word or the expression net neutrality means. You know, if you say to me, should people be able to go where they want on the internet, communicate as, as they see fit, um, do that without um, impediments being imposed by their service provider, and have basically the same equal ability to do that as anybody else, I would say yes, that's right. All that should be true, and I would call that net neutrality. Um, however, there are some who um, look at that same set of facts and say, yes, but, you know, I'm relying on this big company to, how can I trust them? What happens if they, you know, there's this idea that somehow or another we would uh, want to sell um, one service to some particular set of people and not sell it to somebody else? Uh, frankly, I'm not quite sure what the economics of that are, but, um, you know, there's this, this idea that somehow we'll, we'll um, diddle with the system. And the people who are worried about those kinds of things are loud and they're facile on the internet and they have uh, spent a lot of time writing and talking about this. Um, the FCC's looked at this issue and they've come up with a set of, of principles along the lines of the ones that I just suggested to you and we've signed up for those and I think that that's a pretty good response. But sometimes, um, well, there are usually people who want more. And, uh, and they're not satisfied by this. So now we have uh, some of the uh, uh, leaders in Congress, some even uh, 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 
large companies, tech companies, for example, who've been involved sort of on the other side of this saying, well, we need a set of regulations and rules that will say what Verizon can do and what Verizon can't do. Um, you know, frankly, our experience with that sort of thing is that it usually is a disincentive to uh, try new things and be inventive and uh, also usually falls well behind the pace of change of the technology and the Internet and the world we're working in so that the regulations are quickly out of date. Uh, we think that's the wrong way to go, particularly since there's no um, real good example of where uh, there's been some sort of violation. The ones that are generally cited are a case involving us uh, and an a advocacy group for um, abortion rights called NARAL. They uh, wanted to use our uh, uh, wireless text messaging system uh, using what are known as short codes. These are these five-digit uh, codes that you can put in. So you see these like um, um, ESPN uses these. If you want to vote on uh, you know, who's your favorite baseball player or something, you can text you know, uh, Mariano Rivera to one, two, three, four, five, six, and um, that's, that's all it takes you to put in a whole number. Um, a mid-level attorney made a bad decision and told them they couldn't do that. Uh, when the company actually found out what was going on, within four hours we changed that so that they could do it and reversed the decision. Uh, but that example is frequently held up as a case of us not allowing a, quote, controversial group, I'm not sure how controversial they are, but not allowing them to, uh, to use the system on an equal basis with other uh, businesses who can, who can use that. That's not our policy. It wasn't the intention at the time, but we've, I think we've fumbled the ball there. Uh, the other case that usually comes up, and it's far more uh, loudly reported, is Comcast's uh, network management uh, tactics. What they're trying, you know, they have a, uh, an issue of the amount of traffic that they are capable of carrying on their network, and they are, uh, they've done some things to manipulate uh, people's ability to put lots of traffic on the network, and uh, they've been robustly criticized, frankly, all year long for some of the things that they have done. Um, I'm not anybody to defend Comcast. In fact, I, if I get the opportunity, I would do the opposite. But uh, in this case, I think, given their set of circumstances, they're just trying to manage through a, a difficult problem. I think they're doing it in kind of a hand-handed, fumbling way, but they've caused themselves more grief than they probably ever imagined by, by what they've done. So those are the two that come up. There's one other that involved a company called Madison River telephone in Mississippi, I believe, they uh, disabled the ability of a voice over IP provider to use their uh, internet service to compete with their telephone service, and the FCC reversed that in, I think, five or six days. So the cases that have come up, um, I think, have been dealt with by the marketplace, frankly. I mean, you know, as soon as uh, uh, the narrow situation came to the attention of the senior management of Verizon, that decision was changed immediately. As soon as the Madison River case came to public attention, that changed immediately. Comcast has already come out and said that they're now working with uh, others to find different ways to manage the network uh, traffic load that they face, and, and I think that situation is being resolved. So, but, uh, you know, there's uh, no shortage of people in, in uh, third millennium America here, here who, are, uh, who see evil in, in corporations and so on. Uh, 
it's not too surprising if they see it here. Should we take a few of these? Yeah, just to, to kind of build up to the next step, um, we deal with a lot of um, uh, mobile startups. And if you talk to anybody in mobile, they're, they're always talking about how Asia and Europe are so far ahead of the United States in, in mobile. And the general complaint is that the carriers keep getting in the way and the carriers yeah. get out of the way. I was wondering what you think of that. And um, uh, do you see the United States catching up to Asia and Europe? Well, I don't think we're behind Asia and Europe at all. Um, it, you know, what people are usually talking about there is, uh, you know, the ability to switch from one carrier to another, um, which is happens in Europe because there are so many carriers and they're usually country-based and if you cross the border, which is like crossing the state border here, you need to be in another system. So they use uh, chips that go in the phone that can allow you to make that change. Uh, in the United States, we don't have that system, um, but what we do have is far lower prices than they have in Europe. We do have third generation deployed, at least at Verizon, across the country at this point, moving to four. So uh, I think we're doing real well. Uh, on, and we also have terrific service reliability, I think, uh, at least from Verizon. I can't speak for all carriers, but I think we've got some good... foresee a time when the carriers will actually be sharing... Yeah, I do. The fourth generation. The next... Okay, so... You know, we have been using a system, one technology. AT&T uses a different technology, and those are basically the two that are in use in the United States. Both those technologies uh, are moving now to a, to a fourth generation, and that fourth generation is compatible across those two. Uh, the two are the ones that are used globally, essentially. There are some others, but principally, one of those two is used everywhere. Uh, so when you get to the fourth generation, I think we've got the seamless transfer from, from one carrier to another. Um, and so that, that, that mean that I can take my phone to, to, to Europe? Yeah. To yeah. I mean, you have phones that you can do that with today. I've got one here. This is a world phone. Right. Yeah. So right. this works in, yeah. worked in Moscow or works Singapore. There's some places where they still don't work. I mean, Japan has a, yet another system. They're in a kind of a unique situation. But the system we use is used in China, so that's a huge market. It's going to drive a lot of innovation, I think. Um, and then, you know, combining with the system that AT&T uses, which is largely used in Europe, you know, when those are talking back and forth to each other, I think that'll be that'll be that will solve the problem. This this phone that uh, Eric has is it actually has two radios in it. Is the way it works. So one radio works on the Verizon, you know, U.S. system, and then then the other radio works in Europe. Well, Eric has a big paycheck, so he can afford phones. Yeah. Well, actually, actually, you know, expensive. It cost me to upgrade to this because I had a credit because I, I had been keeping I had been keeping the old BlackBerry so long that one of the younger guys in my company said, you know, you fly all around the world with that old BlackBerry. It's bad for your reputation. You got to upgrade. <laughs> cost me two hundred dollars to upgrade to this. <laughs> Well, there, is that is that Verizon? It is. No, it is. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to end the discussion right now. <laughs> well, they have some things that they do that we don't do, but they also don't do things that we do. Yeah, well, I guess um, I work in technology, and I 
Well, they're ahead on price, too. Yeah, well, it's, it's price and doing anything to try to change that perception, because I think that's pretty commonly Well, um, I'm not sure that I've spent a whole lot of time worrying about reports of what's going on someplace else in the world that, you know, is better than, than what we're doing here. Uh, this, there are two basic places where I hear this. One is in this cell phone arena that we're talking about. The other is people complain that you know, broadband has not been adequately deployed in the United States, that we're trailing behind you know, Finland or someplace. Well, I mean, give me a country with three cities to deploy in, and I'd be 100% deployed now, too. You know, it's a considerably different situation here than in Korea. Um, which is the case. 85%, I think, of the population of Korea lives in three cities, so it makes it relatively easy to, to deploy a technology like broadband, in addition to which we're dealing with, you know, 300 million people here. So that's considerably different, too. But uh, in terms of, you know, fiber optics, I think we are, I think I can say this pretty safely, the global leader in deploying fiber optics to residential customers. And that's because of the work that Verizon has done. We're past 10 million homes at this point. I don't think there's any place else in the world that, that is getting there. Uh, as far as speeds, you know, people say, oh, well, they've got 100 megabits in Japan, you know. And I guess that's true. But um, we have a 50 megabit service in the market now. It doesn't sell very well because most people really don't know what they would do with that. I think we probably will add a 100 megabit service in the not too far distant future. And I wouldn't expect that to be a huge seller either. So to a certain degree, you know, because we are doing it uh, not with government assistance and relying on the market, we have to, you know, have customers out there before we can really do a lot of this stuff. In other places, you know, the government subsidizes the systems and so forth. So uh, there's just a lot of differences, I think. And uh, I don't mean to disparage the Europeans or the Japanese, but I think we're doing, or the Koreans or anybody else, but I think we're doing fine. Right. Well, look, I'm 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 not arguing that we shouldn't be deploying faster and faster services, and I would say that the U.S. leader in doing that is Verizon. And you know, we've we've invested a huge amount of money, and we continue to. And you know, I think we will deploy the speeds that people need now. You know, I, I'm not sure what the services are that are driving that in Japan, but. Um, uh, you know, I, I don't see a huge customer demand for that kind of speed at this point here. I think it will develop, however, and I think we will be there with it when it does. I, I'm just going to throw one more in there. When are we going to be able to use our cell phones? I'm not sure it's a good thing. When are we going to be able to use our cell phones on the airplane? <laughs> well, you know, this is really an airline decision. Um, so they would work. Well, in order to make them work, you really need an air-to-ground link in the plane, you know, that picks up the cell phone traffic in the plane and gets up the ground. Um, if you you actually can make a phone call from an airplane today, if you're over a tower someplace, and, and it'll pick it up, and and you can get the communication. So it's not physically impossible to do it that way. It's just not very. Would, would my matter. land card work? Well, I mean, I think that some of the airlines are deploying that kind of technology. 
but they need to put something in the plane to make that happen. But I, I have one of your. Yeah. Would that work? If I sure. If they, if they if they. So even if yeah. they if I just turned it on, I'd never do it because you're not supposed yeah. to. Right. But I just wonder if it would work. Would it? Just amuse it. Anybody? Anybody else bothered by the thought that you know we scan everybody's whole body before you let get on an airplane for a terrorist? But you could apparently, according to the airlines, take down a plane by turning on your cell phones. Kind of bizarre, but at any rate. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Can I bring us back to um, talking about laws? Oh, sure. <laughs> um, maybe, um, could you give me any idea? You said that you identified 20 blogs that Verizon follows regularly and another bunch that you look at regularly. Right. Any, any idea of the matrix or the way that you identify these blogs? Is, are they blogs that are showing you the most? And I think we sort of started with Technorati and looked at, you know, traffic on on blogs that we knew were sort of in that space. Um, then I got to say there's a certain amount of art to this too, you know. We just kind of look at what people are writing and see if there's anything kind of interesting that looks like it's attracting some, you know, chatter back and forth and, and how intense it is. Um, and 20 is, you know, just a number. I don't know, maybe it's 30, might be 50. But it's not, it's not 500. You know, there's a manageable number of these things that, that have enough weight to really matter to us, at least. So it's subjective, the way we yeah, all read a sure. magazine and pass it around and say, hey, I like Well, I think kind of the way you would look at uh, traditional media. Mm -hmm. You know, how much circulation they have, you know, how good is their writing, is it something that, you know, are they saying things that we want to be a part of the conversation, or are they, you know, off in a, another world where, you know, maybe, maybe they are... Uh, taking a view much different from ours and show no interest in, in uh, any other view. I think there's some steering back to on the public policy front, you know, net neutrality or other issues. Yeah. How well do you see the use, I mean, in terms of deploying social media tactics um, on a policy issue in terms of yeah. kind of complementing, you know, kind of becoming the new grassroots grass tops, but also including right. traditional media, the reporters you cover, and then obviously the Congress or regulators. I think there is a real opportunity there. Um, it's it's a third party endorsement in, that you're trying to get, just in the way you know. In, in a few years ago, you might have tried to get the you know AARP or somebody to come out and say something nice about you. I think uh, that opportunity also exists in, in this space as well. Um, it's and I think the opportunity to build your own constituencies is there also, so you can you can you know leverage that as well. Um, they're important. I, I think the importance of the blogs at this point, maybe maybe they're, we're getting a little past this, but the importance has been not so much that they themselves are reaching huge audiences, but that they are reaching people who think that they're reaching huge audiences. So you've got members of Congress looking at a blog and saying, ooh, you know, here's an issue that's really heating up because this guy's beginning to write about it and there's getting to be, I'd better get out ahead of this. So they, they have, some of them, the best of them, I think, have that kind of influence as well. So. Slory, is Verizon actively, or have they in the past, um, used social tools to penetrate any specific verticals? You know, maybe Fios in, in certain markets, uh, there's people in the social sphere who can better carry the, you know, the messaging about why this is so advantageous and thinking, you know, bloggers on the big pipe and things like that. Yes, I think in that way. Uh, 
your, your question got me thinking about whether we could do more in this, and I think we probably can. Uh, I do think, you know, we've, we've tried to get to the internet community with a message about the speeds that we deliver on the fiber and the value of that. I think that's been pretty much accepted at this point. Um, so, in that way, I think we have. And it's really one of the things that sort of drove us to set up a blog in the first place. We're sort of thinking about, you know, well, who would care about what we're doing here? And, geez, well, these guys would because, what, they're doing this all day long. So, uh, you know. But there, there's probably a lot more that could be done there. Any uh, final questions? Well, thank you very much. I just want to make a closing announcement and let you know PRSA is a large organization with a lot of moving parts. Uh, there are the chapters that exist on the local level. Uh, there are the professional um, networking sections that exist by vertical industry segment. And then there's the national headquarters. And uh, this conference was produced by National Headquarters, by the professional development team. I advised on content, I helped out a little bit, but the real work was done by Barbara McDonald, the Vice President um, of the Communications <laughs> Judy Voss, the Director of Professional Development, and Colleen Siever, the Manager. And I'll tell you something, I mean, like all of you, you know, I have a day job as well. This never would have happened if it was not for their perseverance and hard work. So I just want to say thank you to you all. And, and keep in mind, you know, there are all sorts of educational opportunities through PRSA. Some come from chapters, some come from the sections, some come from national. So if you liked this program, you might take a look at the other programs that are available through national. Um, particularly the teleseminar programs, which uh, are excellent. Um, I do one called the Meet the Media panel, where I put together a different panel of journalists each month to discuss not just best media relations practices, but also new media. Uh, there's the New Media PR Boot Camp, which is, goes gangbusters. We do it once a month. And uh, it really, for me, is, uh, has been a privilege and an honor to be in a position to be able to lead this uh, conference for the last two days. So thank you all for giving us your attention, and uh, we will see you on the blogosphere. <laughs> You've been listening to On the Record Online with Eric Schwartzman, where reporters and journalists go on the record about how they use the web to cover the news. For the latest trends, tips, and tactics on how the web impacts corporate reputations, subscribe to our RSS news feed or visit us online at www.ipressroom.com.